Please remain standing for our scripture reading. I'm going to be preaching and reading out of the book of Acts. I'll be in the 18th chapter, verses 1 through 11. God's holy word. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had been commanded, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook off his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with, with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul, one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people." And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we open your word and examine it, Father, give us hearts and minds that would be receptive to your word. Father, help us to see clearly. Help us to learn from you. I pray that the Holy Spirit would abound in our sanctuary and that truth would, be, would come forth, Father. And all of that is only possible if you preach. Father, all these things I ask in the precious name of Jesus Christ. The title for this morning's sermon is No Fear for the New Year. You know, normally, New Year's Eve is a day of celebration. It's a, a time when we look back on the year that's passed, and we look forward with anticipation for what awaits us in the, in the upcoming year. And to be sure, that's still going to happen. Many people are excited. But I've noticed in work, where in, and in sometimes in my circles, that there's a lot of fear and trepidation. Uh, the economy is kind of wavering a little bit. Interest rates are up. And there's been a lot of turmoil in the last few years. And the people that I've talked to in my business and in life and in my friends and in religious circles, there's a lot of fear and trepidation moving forward into this year, into this upcoming year. And that's to be understood. We've had several years in a row of turmoil, of unrest. We've seen the violence in the streets. We've seen uh, political wars. We've seen battles. And 2024 looks like we should expect a little bit more of the same, a little bit of unrest, a little bit of uneasiness in our country. And obviously, uh, this has not always been the case. Uh, several years ago, uh, Tom Brokaw had a, wrote a book, he co-authored a book. It was called The Greatest Generation. He had a TV show on it as well, and it was about 
the greatest generation. And that was uh, the greatest generation, for those of you who don't know, are the people that were born early in the 20th century. These were the folks that uh, survived the Depression. Uh, they went into war with Empirical Japan and Socialist Germany and overcame great odds to uh, destroy those enemies. The Great Depression by itself was a huge test for these people. And this group of Americans overcame that. According to Victor Davis Hanson, he's a, a well-known military historist, he says that our military just prior to World War II was smaller than that of Portugal's. And I found that you know, shocking. I was amazed at that. But you look at some of the old World War II videos at the beginning of the war, we had biplanes, we had the funny helmets. We were woefully behind. We were largely an agrarian society. We didn't have a lot of world power. We were kind of isolationist. And this generation took on that challenge, overcame, and 60 million people died in World War II. These men and women came home from the war and they built the United States that we know today. It became a world superpower, an economic juggernaut. And subsequent generations, we have the baby boomers uh, after World War II and then my generation, Generation X, you know, they've kind of embraced, we embraced different philosophies. You remember the 60s, there was a lot of resentment of authority, a lot of resentment for government, and it just wasn't in those arenas too. It was in the uh, philosophical arenas. People in our generations did not want to be told that there is a higher authority, and we really embraced autonomy. We didn't want an ultimate authority, whether it be the state or a god, telling them that they have to follow certain rules. The idea of us being bound by a Christian culture, a Judeo-Christian worldview, was quickly becoming anathema in the United States. When I go to my parents' house, my parents are in the, what they call the silent generation, which is the one that followed the greatest generation. They were, I think, born from 1920 to 1938, somewhere in there. If you go to someone in that generation's house, I can go to my wife's parents' house, I can go to my parents' house. One thing that is consistent is a schedule. You know, at five o'clock, you put on the nightly news. At 5.30, you watch the national news. You watch Fox News after that. And it is, it's, you can go to either one of their houses and it's like clockwork. And when I go to my dad's house, it is, uh, it's a very troubling, because they, stay in the house and they watch these news programs all day and I'm there watching with my dad on occasion. At Thanksgiving we were up there and he looks at me and he sees all the upheaval and the turmoil and he looks at me and he says, son, why are they doing this? What is going on? What is the cause of all this turmoil? And you can literally see the fear in his eyes. He just does not get why we make the decisions as a country that we do, why we are turning our back on the history of this country. And I've been trying, you know, explain to them, it's really a spiritual war. It's a, a war, and this goes back to the fall, you've got the, the, line, the line of the seed of, the, of Satan, of the devil, and you've got the line of the seed of the woman. And these two have been clashing since the fall. And I pointed him towards Psalm number two, verses one and two, and I will read those. 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, we are in the midst of a spiritual war. My dad asked the question, why are they doing this? What is going on? It's talked about in scripture. It's predicted. This is the theological, spiritual battle that has been taking place since the fall. But he still asks the question, why? Why are we doing this? It's because we've had fear. We have turned our backs on the, on the, on the word of God, the law that he has given us. The, the church has lost its faith in the gospel. So the slide continues. Started in 50s and 60s, we saw the, the decline going on. Then in 1973, the Supreme Court legalized abortion. It said in every state, it's legal. 63 million deaths later, the slide continues. Even with Roe versus Wade overturned, this was not a great spiritual awakening. Yes, it was a good thing that happened. Anytime you restrict abortion, it's a blessing. But we can still see on TV and with people that we know that may be for this type of thing, we can see that they are angered by this. We can see a lot of the celebrities, a lot of people that we look up to as being against this view. And not to mention a few mainline churches are uneasy with this Roe v. Wade being turned overturned. And to be sure, it's still a state's right. This wasn't the Supreme Court standing up and saying, hey, no, this is morally wrong. This is something we did, need to change. No, they simply said, it's a state's right. The Constitution has nothing to do with this. States make your laws. And I anticipate more states to address the old laws that they have, and we will see more abortion becoming prevalent again. The greatest generation after World War II had their tribunals. They would hold to account the war criminals of Japan and of Nazi Germany, and they held these people accountable. That's not what the Supreme Court was doing here. They were not trying to hold people to account. They were simply saying this is a state's right, state's rights issue, and the battle will continue. It's important. This battle is a spiritual war. The enemy will not give quarter, nor will they ask for quarter. The church over the decades has been interestingly and embarrassingly quiet on many of these subjects. Ironically, lately, uh, several secular people have uh, taken note to that that this war has a spiritual nature to it. I'm a big fan of Tucker Carlson, and uh, he's, a, um, he's a theist. I wouldn't call him a, a theologian, but even he recognizes this spiritual element to this battle that's taking place in our country. Also, Jordan Peterson, the, the Canadian, a genius, a very intelligent man. And neither one of these are what you would consider fundamentalist Christians, but they are solid men and they have a clear mind that can see the spiritual element, the evil that is at war in this country. And they have been more vocal on it oftentimes and see more clearly than the men of the church. In 2015, June 26, 2015, the SCOTUS, the Supreme Court, 
declared that same-sex marriage is legitimate. Some states had laws that said, no, there's no such thing. You know, this is made up. But the court decided that it is. They said that any state that has a law prohibiting it, they cannot. And they, can, they had to honor other states' laws that said it was okay. And the slide continues. The battle for the culture rages. You see, man... He wants to, natural man wants to snub his nose at his creator. God cannot tell me who I can marry. God cannot tell me what gender I am. And the fundamental principle of, all, of this war is this. It's what God calls evil, reprobate man calls good. You cannot tell me my sex. Man wants to be his own God. He wants to be autonomous. He does not want to be accountable to a higher authority. It boils down to who is God? And, why, why, and my dad still asks, like, why is this happening? Why are we going through this? Why does the country go down this road? Well, one reason, churchmen have become fearful. They didn't trust the gospel. They became pragmatic. And at the beginning of the 20th century, they started to trust in, in uh, pragmatism, methods. We think of Charles Finney. And we think of progressive eugenics that dominated the early 20th century. This was the, the foundation of liberalism inside the church. We think of all the great mainline denominations that used to dominate this country and how they have collapsed. And really, the blame doesn't go to the reprobate man. It goes to us, to the church, the evangelicals. We forsake our first calling. In 1950, Gallup did a poll and they asked uh, the recipients of this poll, when you were a child, did you receive any theological training? Were you catechized? Were you taught in Sunday school? Did you learn about theology? And only 6% said, no, I have never received any theological training. In 1990, same poll, same question, <clears throat> it was 38%. And what is that? Uh, that's 34 years ago. Can you imagine what that poll would look like today. The slide continues. <clears throat> the culture, that a culture would turn its back on its creator is really nothing new. It was in Paul's day in Corinth, and it's in ours. I'm gonna, before I get to our text, I wanted to read Ephesians chapter 6. And it's an important verse, in my opinion, because it, it tells us the elements of this battle. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These terms all refer to a powerful spiritual being, the, the, the spirit of the sky. This isn't a battle of Republicans versus Democrats although that's how we often see it. We try to think, oh, the Republicans, are the, they're the good guys. To be sure, there's many fallen people in the Republican Party. The Democrat Party, obviously the same. But this war is real. It's got a spiritual element to it. It's not just two political parties battling it out. Why is this happening? Fear and a lack of trust in the Word of God. We, the church... <clears throat> have been marginalizing the word of God for generations for fear. Sometimes we fear that it won't work. Other times we fear that it will offend. We you know, guard our language, our speech, or fear that it will embarrass ourselves. 
And of course, in some parts of history, not really in this country, for fear of punishment. We modern 21st century Christians in the West forget that fear has been a problem for men throughout redemptive history. You know, the main one we think of is uh, Martin Luther, the great German reformer. You know, we think of these men in history and how how brave and powerful they were. And to be sure, Martin Luther was a great man. But if you know anything about his history, he, excuse me, did his 95 theses, posted them on the door at the Wittenberg Church, and these were his arguments against the Roman Catholic Church, the points that he said, this is where we are in error. Diet of Worms comes into, into, and that's a, a, a kind of a court. It was made up of uh, state politicians and theological leaders of the Catholic Church. Luther's summoned, he has to come to this court, and he's asked by these uh, men. He's, they've got a stack of his books, his works, and they say, Luther, are these your books? And he says, yes, those are mine. And they ask him, hey, recant or face the consequences. So what does Luther do? Well, we think, oh yeah, he stood up right then and there and said, yeah, these are mine. No, he asked for 24 hours. He wanted to consider the consequences of his claim. Am I going to stand with my works? No, he was, he was fearful, and rightfully so. You know, the heretics at that time were burned at the stake, so the consequences were dear. You know, this was a life or death action he was asked to take. So he takes it 24 hours, comes back the next day, gives a lofty speech, and uh, the judge says, be more clear, stay specifically. And he says, here I stand. And that is at the point when he overcame his fear and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. That begs the question, how do we enter into a a new year to confront a wicked culture like Corinth? Let's look at Acts 18 again, our text. We see, we see what goes on. Paul comes into Corinth. He starts preaching in the synagogue. They reject him. They revile him. And they cast him out. And uh, we know Paul. He has been beaten and jailed. You can just flip back a few pages before and see the problems that he had encountered how bad it had been for him. And he, who is Paul? He was a Pharisee. He was a man's man, a world traveler, a great orator. He could speak well. He was gifted. He was a strong man. But even Paul trembled when he entered Corinth. As some of us may be trembling when we're looking forward into the year 2024. You know, it's not unusual for fear to overtake the Christian. That culture, like ours, was dedicated to the physical appetites and physical pleasures of life. Corinth, as you may or may not know, was a a large um, trading destination. It was separated northern and southern Greece. It was an isthmus, and Corinth was situated there. So the land routes went through Corinth to northern and southern Greece, and the waterways also met there. So you have got... One way to look at it, it's a giant San Francisco and New Orleans kind of combined, but more powerful, more wealth. You can imagine all the cultures mixed in there and the depravity. If you've been to New Orleans, you know firsthand what this can look like. So you know that why Paul could have been intimidated by this city. Again, he's a worldly man. He's been around the block. He's seen much, but this 
really struck fear in him. And if you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, this is a letter he wrote after he went in. So he's looking back at to when he entered the city. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech, was, and, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see it right there. He came into Corinth with fear and trembling and weakness. Paul rested not in himself, but he knew that the Spirit of God was with him. But the evil he faced made even the self-confident Paul tremble. Paul had no notion of a city this evil. He was coming out of Athens, and that was a more uh, sophisticated city. It was a town of uh, education, of refinement. And he had just come out. He had uh, debated at Mars Hill, and he was a highly trained orator. But true evil can cause even the strongest to hesitate. A few years ago, or maybe a year and a half ago, the movie Sound of Freedom came out. I'm sure several of you maybe have seen it. My wife will attest to this. I very rarely go to the show. I've been to the theater literally in our 30 years of marriage probably five times. And uh, I heard about this movie, and it looked good, and she suggested we go, and we went. And for those of you that may not know, it was a movie, a true, it's a, a historical movie about the sex trade that is engulfing the globe. And uh, I watched this movie and I went in and literally I thought I might have to get up and walk out. It was that evil that men and women would kidnap small children and take them off and use them in, in disgusting ways, let's say. But the fear, I had fear when I was sitting in that theater not that someone was going to come in and break in and drag me down the aisle and throw my popcorn on my head, but fear of the evil. It was a very powerful movie, and uh, it's not for everybody. It's not a uh, gratuitous movie. It's something you can watch, and it's educational. It's a true film. And, but be warned, the evil that's depicted in that sh movie is will make you tremble. I literally thought I would have to get up and walk out. I didn't. I finished the movie, but it is a powerful example of true evil. And I wondered as I prepared this sermon, you know, is that the kind of fear Paul had as he entered Corinth? Undoubtedly, similar events were taking place in that city. It was a truly debased, debauched place that he was going to. But God knew. God obviously is omniscient. He knows Paul's needs, as we see in verse 9 of our text. Paul is uh, he's confronted with his fear. He's in agony over it. <clears throat> in verse 9, I read this. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. Do not be silent. He was confronting Paul's fear. Do not be silent. He tells him that he's going to protect him in verse 10. I'm frightened right now. Coming up here to preach, even to lead worship, it's a frightening experience. 
Can you imagine going into a fallen, debauched city like Corinth and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ? Paul was encountering a truly debauched and wicked culture. But God told him, don't be silent. Go, speak, preach. Perhaps we will face a similar culture moving forward. So, now I get to my church, my outline. How does a 21st century Christian react in an evil, debauched society? Typically in history, there's been three ways. The first one is avoidance. Paul could have came to Corinth, looked, gone through the city, hit the gate, met Timothy and Silas as they were coming in and said, come on boys, let's get out of here, let's go back to Athens. This place is depraved, we can't do any good here. Let's avoid it. And indeed, we tend to stay away from danger. Sometimes that's wise. In verse 10, God tells him, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in the city who are of my people. To be sure, spoiler alert, this this, um, encouraging word God is giving Paul is not for us. We can't go into the Ninth Ward at midnight in New Orleans and hand out Bible tracts. He's not saying that to us. That was a directive straight to Paul. Hermeneutics here are very important. There are dangers a Christian will face, and we have to weigh them. The dangers that are to be avoided is a sign of wisdom. If we look at Proverbs 22, verse 3. This is a good, a good um, answer for a reckless behavior. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it anew. So we see there are times when we should be cautious. We should not throw haste to the wind, and just be reckless. We must use prudence. Of course, other times, sometimes we see the evil, and we cover our ears. Like when I go to my dad's house, he turns on the NBC Nightly News, that might be a good clue for me to go take a shower or go do something outside, <laughs> because it's, it can be depressing. It can bother you, and it, uh, it can ruin your life. There was a time when I listened to talk radio all day at work, and it didn't bother me. I'd listen all day. Good shows, I would learn, I'd be get educated. Today, it's tougher for me. I've got to separate a little bit or it, it overcomes me. But we cannot separate completely. Even in politics, we have to be aware of what's going on. Avoidance is not the answer. We can also think of denominations that embrace this view. Some are prevalent in our southern community. We recognize these people by their apparel, the way they dress, the way they wear their hair. And typically, these people, these churches, are very clannish, very cliquish. They tend to work together when all possible. They, they create kind of a, uh, a community, and it's, uh, maybe it's more prevalent in Louisiana. We've got some uh, real big Pentecostal apostolic type churches that are known for being very secretive and very clannish and cliquish, but this is not the scriptural example of how the church is to behave. Obviously, we, the reference would be to the Great Commission in Matthew 28. The church is charged with going and making disciples. We are charged to go. We are not to stay within the confines of our fence. We are to go out and to preach and to make disciples of all nations. 
Matthew 5, 14 through 16, I am going to read. It's uh, very helpful in understanding this. Excuse me, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt lost its taste, how should its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do a people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We see here, we aren't to hide our good works. We are to go out into the world, not hide from it, and we are to do this, not for our glory, but for the, the glory of Jesus Christ. But the evil is too much. The cry goes out. The evil is too much. We must hide. We must, we must take cover. That is not the biblical example. Romans 12, verse 2 says this. <clears throat> Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind and by the testing. You may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Obviously, we are to remain in this world. We are of this world. We are to not be transformed by it. We are to influence the world. And this is a very important point. We are to go out, pull weeds, knock down the thistles, regain territory. The gates of hell are not going to stand against us. We are not to hide behind our own gates. Often, how does the world, the evangelical church, react to a debauched culture? With fear and separation. Another second way we deal with evil as the church is to conform. And this is the most prevalent method in Western civilization in the last century. The Western church, Canada, United States, and um, Europe, I consider part of the West. Churchmen, since the fall, for fear or for gain, have been conforming to culture rather than and engaging in a reclamation project of restoring the nation. Now, yeah, some men are fearful, and others simply want gain. And there's always been wolves that abound, and we can see them. It's easy. The lust for greed and avarice has led churchmen to use pragmatism rather than scriptural norms to grow the church. And we've seen this before. That's nothing new. These wicked men trust not the scripture and our counterfeit and our wolves but they're not the biggest problem we've always had those they are as old as this country we've had shucksters selling miracle seed miracle wheat all sorts of scams you can turn on your television and go to tbn and you'll see the commercials people asking for money but in my opinion this is not what befalls besets our country we are not struggling because of these shucksters They've always been with us. But the disease that has infected the evangelical and reformed church is the disease that has led to our culture's destruction. Churchmen, because of fear and failure and their inability to trust Christ and his word, have conformed their views, the scriptural views, to that of culture. Perhaps a more whimsical or a 21st century version of Paul might have been more accommodating to the sexual proclivities of first century Corinth. And that is the danger that we see in the PCA. Why? Often it's 
fear. We are scared. We don't want, we don't want to be, portray, be portrayed as Neanderthal. Uh, scripture is passe in culture. We don't want to look old-fashioned or rigid. We want to look educated, typically Presbyterians. Typically, we are educated people. We are well-to-do people. We are successful people. And we fear being laughed at and mocked by the people that we look up to. We want to be perceived as educated. We want to be perceived as on the cutting edge. I had a, a, a very good friend who was a, a Southern Baptist minister. When Cole and I first got married, we lived in Tennessee. Very reformed man for a, a Baptist preacher. A very intelligent man, Greek and Hebrew. He was great. If I have a question, I still call him. He knows the Bible, knows theology. He knows the doctrines of grace. He's a Baptist, so we have some disagreements, but a brother in Christ to be sure. He preached exegetically. He would go through a book, so you, you know, complete. You can't skip over verses. And my wife and I went to visit his church one Sunday, and we looked at the text, and we, uh, I said, oh, this will be interesting. I knew the man's views on that particular subject that was being covered that day, so oh, I want to see how he handles this. And I was disappointed. He took a, a subject that was very clear. The perspicuity of Scripture was clear in this verse, and he accommodated it to the people in his church. He said it was a cultural norm, not a, a long-lasting standard for Christians today. And it's one thing to have a different view on something in Scripture, but it's another thing to betray a trust, a knowledge that you hold. And I knew his views on this subject, and he kind of accommodated the congregation. He conformed to their view and gave a different answer to the scripture's question that day. At that point, his church, it seemed like it was an ascending church. Lots of families were going there. It was healthy, vibrant. Church was full. Subsequent to that day, and I'm talking you know, years after that, it, church seemed to be steadily declining. And this all culminated in he being asked to leave the church. And I've always... And now he's completely out of the, the ministry. Still a Christian, godly man. I still love him. But I've often wondered, did that day affect his ministry? You know, people probably knew. As Christians, we are held to a higher standard, and we must be consistent. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, we read a text kind of pertaining to this view. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others... I myself should be disqualified. Paul here is telling us we must be consistent in our speech. The outside world is looking at us, and they see when we, when we backslide a little bit, when we're hypocritical, and we are all guilty of this. Proverbs 9, verse 10, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But God moves mountains, not us. Our faith is in God, and he is the mountain mover. But we are commanded not to fear the effectiveness of Christ's law and word. We should not doubt God. <clears throat> also, 
failing to address something God calls evil as sin, we are, in a way, involved in that sin. The church is not allowed to wink at sin, nor can it be ignored. In our text today, Scripture screams, don't compromise. This is where the PCA will face her greatest challenges moving forward. Again, we like to compromise with the elites, with the uh, winking at sin, the SSA uh, controversy we, our denomination had a few years ago, that's same-sex attraction. We had an elder that was celibate, but same-sex attracted, and it resolved itself in our courts, but that there was an argument there is very telling. There are men in our presbytery, not our presbytery, excuse me, in our denomination, that think this is an acceptable behavior. Creation is another topic that's a sensitive one in the Presbyterian Church in America. Some of our seminaries are teaching a non-literal view of creation, a non-24-hour, six-day creation. And you say, well, is that a big deal? Well, it has ramifications as to how you interpret Scripture, and it has ramifications in accommodation. Why are these men accommodating that view? And that, in my opinion, very telling. They are accommodating it because they want to appear as intellectual, as elite, as scientific. This didn't happen, 500, this has never happened in the history of the church. Genesis is a historical narrative, it's very clear, but this has come around since um, we have decided that uh, evolution is a plausible explanation of the world, and some men in the church don't want to appear as passe or uneducated or unrefined. They want to be included in the, in, the, in the cool guy crowd, to say in a term. But scripture is perspicuous on this subject. It's clear in Genesis that this is historical narrative. A hundred men may read Genesis 1 and 2, read the creation account. Ninety-nine of them are going to say the Bible teaches a literal six-day creation. Now, ninety-nine aren't going to necessarily agree with that, but they will say scripture undoubtedly teaches God created the world in six days. I'm sure most of them would probably thumb their nose at the idea, but they would be forced to recognize the fact that Scripture does teach that. And I think that is a foundational doctrine as I go through my licensure examinations. I've been asked that question several times, you know, two or three times, literally, what is your view on creation? Our presbytery is a very solid and reformed presbytery, and they really want to know. Uh, so what are we saying when we are weak and not clear on scriptural teachings of the Bible? We are saying we fear culture. Uh, a fifth way that we face uh, compromise in the church is our worship. And I'm not talking about music styles necessarily. Our worship should not be too closely aligned with the world. And if you travel outside the South, if you go to a Presbyterian church, a PCA church, sometimes you're like, mm, this is a little odd. You know, you can go into uh, the Northeast and there's some very odd ways of worshiping. And again, I'm not talking about music styles. I'm talking about, you know, performances and dances and different um, things that are probably not conforming to the regulative principle of worship that we hold to. So you have isolation, you have participation. The third way Christians can interact with a fallen culture 
is by trusting and teaching the word of God. Back to our text, verse 11. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. What did the debauched country of, or city of Corinth need? What does this country need? What does our city, what does Macomb need? The answer, the same thing this nation needs, that Corinth needs, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.12. As I turn there, one of my fears is to get up in front of the church and not be able to find the book of Genesis or the book of Matthew. So I put little stick-it notes in my Bible. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and that we impart in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths who are spiritual. So we see that we are to trust the teachings of God. Paul knew the remedy. He trusted the gospel. He knew the answer. The same gospel that saved me, the same gospel that saved you, the same gospel that saved the saints in Corinth is the only means to bring reformation and revival to this fallen culture, to our falling land. Isolating will do no good. Compromising only invites further destruction and judgment. The only word that saves is Jesus Christ and him crucified. As we are conformed with the world's evil in 2024, know that we are not to fear to the point of compromise, but to stand on every word of Jesus Christ. To be sure, we can be tempted, and that is self-evident. Even the world understands the power of temptation. But an equally dangerous pitfall for the Reformed Christian, for us, is to look upon the worldly system, the sinfulness, with scorn and to view it, to have a view that we are somehow superior. Matthew 5 is very helpful on this subject. Matthew 5. <clears throat> Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Apart from the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, we are just as guilty as this debauched world, the culture that we live in. All of us have looked at women, women wrongfully. Men, women looked at men inappropriately. We have all broken this commandment without, without exception. Know that we are no better than the people that are in the streets that we look down upon. A good litmus test with, for this is to go to, we went to an LSU football game a couple years ago. And we went through the student section. It was, I think, 10.30 in the morning. And the debauchery and the ill behavior by young men and women in the student section, in the, not the Grove, I forgot what they call it, but that student area was, made you tremble. It was disgusting. And the grown-ups are not much better outside that area. A good litmus test is to go there and not be tempted by the activity, 
you know, hey, that looks like a lot of fun. Maybe I can get involved. Or to look down upon these people as somehow being less than us. Know that apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, we would be right there. Know that our faith is in Jesus Christ, and he is the author of our salvation. Paul knew who he was. Perhaps another reason for his fear was the knowledge of his own depravity. I know I've been reading a lot of scripture this morning. I got a couple more. Bear with me. I'm going to be reading out of the book of Acts, chapter 7. And this tells a lot. This is an an account of Paul before his conversion when he is known as Saul. I'll be reading Acts 7, 54 and onward. Now when they had heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, that's Stephen, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at Stephen. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You see, Paul, he was involved with a lot of evil. And he had seen a lot, and Paul was probably struck with fear at that moment when Stephen is being stoned, a very horrendous way to die. Stephen was asking his father to forgive these people that were partaking in this evil. This might be one of the reasons Paul was so fearful as he entered Corinth. He was gripped by fear. So you might be asking, Who can be faithful? Who can run this race? Who can do this? Who is worthy? Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus Christ came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, Christ, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So who can stand? Is it Peter? Can Peter stand? Is Peter the one that's worthy? No. Christ is not talking about Peter being the rock. He's talking about his confession of Jesus Christ being the Lord and sovereign Savior for his people. The power power is not in the evangelist, but in the Holy Spirit. Paul trusted the gospel. God moves mountains. We do not. One last verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. I read this. Yet among the mature we do not impart wisdom. 
although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Ladies and gentlemen, fear not, God is faithful. The world may have thorns and thistles and troubles and problems, but God will finish his reclamation progress of our lives and of this world that he has ordained, all the ends and all the means. Amen.